If you would turn with me this morning to the book of Psalms, we'll be concluding Psalm 37 this morning with the second half of that chapter, verses 21 through 40. Psalm 37, 21 through 40. We are continuing in this second half in what seems to be kind of an unorganized Proverbs-like setup in this chapter, and yet it is a highly structured treatise. In fact, it is an interesting poetic structure called an abecedarius, which means it is an alphabetic acrostic, using each letter of the Hebrew alphabet throughout to begin different portions of this psalm. So on the one hand, it seems structured. On the other hand, it seems unstructured. But it's a treatise on how to react when the wicked prospers. Now the first half tells us three times that the believer should not fret about it. That is, fly into a passion when they see this taking place. But in the second half, the focus seems three times in particular on David telling us that believers will be protected and not abandoned. So the first half of the psalm reminds us of our duty not to fly into a passion when we see things we don't like and we see people who seem to be wicked who are prospering. But here in the second half, why should we do that? It is because the Lord cares about, loves, and will not forsake his children. Follow along as I read beginning at verse 21. We'll read through the end of the chapter. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good and dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. As we consider these words of wisdom and words of grace, let us turn briefly to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, as we consider this portion of your word, we pray that by your spirit, you would prick our hearts to hear it and understand it and apply it to our lives. We pray that the benefits of the spirit might be strong upon us this morning, that when we leave this place, we are renewed, encouraged, and strengthened to live the lives you've called us to live. And Father, we pray that we might rest in you. Lord, if any words here spoken today or thought in our hearts are not consistent with your own word, let them pass pass away and never be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you may believe, and I think there is some truth to this, that there are individuals with deep pockets, constantly spending money, using their power and their influence, not only to promote wicked ideas but to destroy the righteous and anything associated with righteousness. After all, we could see this in politics. We could see this in academia. We could see this in our workplaces and in the corporations of the day, really in any place that we set foot. There are those who will use their money, their power, their resources to do anything they can to destroy the character and nature of God and his people. So what do we do? On the one hand, we must not act as if the Lord doesn't care and that we must do the work. Sometimes I think we believers think that we have to do all the work of correcting all the world's evils and go out and bring all the evil people down to where they need to go. But this scripture reminds us that God, in the end, will take care of the wicked. On the other hand, sometimes we tend to think that we can't do anything and therefore we fret and worry and are anxious and unable to calm ourselves in order to do what God has called us to do, to walk with him and to do what is right. In this passage, we're reminded that we must rest assured that God will not forget his people. So he gives us, and you'll notice here this time, unlike most of my sermons, I haven't divided up into sections of scripture and gone point by point because it's hard to do in this section of scripture. So I have three points here that follow along the scriptures in this section. First of all, there are descriptions of these contrasting people, the guilty and the righteous. Secondly, this psalm reminds us of the Lord's treatment of these contrasting people, the righteous and the guilty. And finally, we'll find some nuggets of truth and some commands or imperatives that tell us proper actions of the believers to these contrasts. In other words, what I'm trying to do, if you're kind of looking behind the scenes of what a pastor does in his sermons, I'm basically telling you what it says, and in the last point, I'm giving the application. But first of all, these descriptions of contrasting people In fact, scripture tells us that on the one hand, we might call them believers and unbelievers. Here in this passage, they're called the guilty, or in our translation, the wicked. And the other set of people is called the righteous. Here are some of the descriptions of these particular individuals. First of all, the guilty. It's kind of a surprise, the first description of the guilty in this section of Psalm 37. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. 
Now, is this talking about your neighbor that comes over and borrows your tools and doesn't ever bring them back? Well, in a sense, it can be, if it's for wicked purposes and so forth, there seems to be some disagreement over what exactly circum, what exact circumstance this might imply. Uh, some would say, well, this is the person who borrows with no intent of paying back. In other words, they're just stealing from you. That could be the case. But it's interesting that the majority of commentaries that I read on this subject said that there are those who, because of their extravagant spending on their own selfish pleasures, are unable to pay you back because they don't have anything left. And so they borrow in order to satisfy their own pleasures, and because they cannot pay you back and are unable to in their self-imposed poverty, it demonstrates their guiltiness or that they are transgressors. But the bottom line is this. These are individuals who, in the end, borrow something but don't pay it back. Second part of the guilty is a little bit later on in verse 32. It says, The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The idea here is that they lie in wait. And notice the words. To kill the righteous. So it means to put them to death, to execute them, to kill them, whatever. So on one hand, they're not concerned about your welfare, taking from you what does not belong to them. And secondly, they don't like the righteous. In fact, in the end, they're seeking your death. This is a description of the guilty. The third one here is kind of a strange verse. In fact, it's hard to translate. It's about this tree that spread out. Maybe you noticed it as we read it. It says in verse 35, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Now, we don't know exactly in English what this means, but the idea seems to be as if this person is exposing his glory. In other words, he's, he's telling everybody in his arrogance and pride how wonderful he is, and with that, he seems to be planted firmly in the ground and prospering. But the description that's here is he's a wicked, ruthless man. This word ruthless is the word violent or tyrant. He's a violent man spreading out like a full tree. Now, of course, I don't think the psalmist is saying that every single transgressor that their particular expression of uh, sin is violence or is seeking to put to death literally all those in their neighborhood that are Christians or perhaps is the kind of person that is going to borrow and not repay. These are characteristics of the guilty person. And they remind us that this, this, these are evidences that this person is not interested in following the ways of the Lord. They're not living a righteous lifestyle, and they're living in contrast to and even against someone who is righteous. That's the guilty. Now, what are the descriptions of the righteous? Some of them are just antithetical. Of course, if the one is stealing and borrowing without repaying, what does the righteous do? He's gracious and generous. It's not just that he's going to pay back what he borrows or reimburse or whatever it is, 
but he's gracious and giving. In other words, when he sees someone in need, he's not even going to lend to that person. He's going to give generously in the right circumstances with wisdom. He's not looking to gain interest from somebody else. He's not interest, interested in maintaining control of the gifts that he's given. He is someone who is gracious. In other words, he's giving a gift like God gives without strings attached. And this is what we as believers do with the church. When we give to the church, we understand the leadership has the responsibility to handle those things wisely, so we give without strings attached because we're gracious. And we're also giving, even if we don't have a lot. We're willing to give of what we have. In fact, Jesus recommends that if we have two cloaks and we see someone in need in a certain circumstance, then we give up one of those cloaks. Half of our goods at times. Sometimes we see the righteous are more generous even in their poverty than the wicked are in their great riches and luxurious living. That's the first thing. They're gracious and giving. It's kind of interesting, too, that it says it's not once but twice in this text. At the beginning, verse 21, it says, but the righteous is generous and gives. And then verse 26 says he is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. In other words, this kind of attitude of being gracious and giving is a hallmark of a righteous person. The second characteristic that I've listed here for you is that he speaks righteously and justly. Verses 30 and 31 illustrate what this means. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. This idea here is that in these cases, he is righteously speaking in wisdom. He is speaking right things according to the wise teachings of the Lord in scripture and he is also speaking justly he's fair in his dealings he's not underhanded he's not seeking to get his own way he's not deceiving others he is speaking righteously in wisdom and justly the third thing is this verse 31 the law of his God is in his heart his steps do not slip isn't this the key For the righteous person, he has God's law in his heart. This doesn't mean that the righteous person is able there to go out and follow all the law, and so he's earned his righteousness. No, this is a recognition that the person who is righteous is a person under the new covenant that God has made with his people. God has rescued them from their sin, delivered them, and has written his law on their heart, as Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 tells us. We're reminded he has God's law in his heart. So why is it, for example, that he is gracious and generous to others? Because the Spirit is prompting him to follow the law that describes these things. We forget sometimes the law of God in the Old Testament was not just do this or don't do that. It was also consider the poor in the land and give generously to them. It was also that you wouldn't plow your fields clear to the end towards the fence or boundary of your property so that the boundary and edges of the property would be for the poor to glean their own food when they needed it. There were also rules that told them they could not uh, charge interest of their fellow Israelites 
If they were to give them something, it was to give it to them without charging interest. In other words, gaining by their poverty. These were things gracious and giving because the law was on their hearts. It wasn't just something that they were rotely following because they're law keepers. No, it was flowing from their heart to do these things. The same thing with speaking righteously or justly. You shall not be false witnesses. What does that mean? Does that mean that, hey, we just have to be careful what we say so nobody catches us? So that God doesn't catch us in a light? No, that means it's our, our heart attitude and motivation because we're God's people to do what is right and pleasing in his eyes, speaking righteousness, wisdom, and justice. They have God's law in their heart. But perhaps the most important part of this is the very last verse of our chapter, verse 40. It says, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. Why? Because they take refuge in him. Some of the older translations say they trust in him. But I think to take refuge is something more than just trusting. Sometimes we can say we trust something. I think one of the big examples that Christians use sometimes is what we can say, a chair will hold our weight, but if we never sit in it, do we really trust it? The idea is we're taking refuge in him. We're actually acting upon our faith. We're trusting that he loves us, will take care of us, and will save us. So here's a description of the guilty. The guilty are those who will take advantage of others, steal from them, seek to harm them, and be violent as they seek to show their wealth to the world. The righteous are those who are gracious and giving, speaking with words of righteous wisdom and justice. They have God's law in their heart and they're people of faith. Of course, we know if they're not people of faith, they can't be righteous because we only have righteousness by faith. Let me ask you a question here. Have you ever had a family member or a friend borrow your car? Not too many people lend out their car these days. What would you do if they never returned your car or reimbursed you in any way? I've known people where this has happened to them, and they've done nothing about it. Amazing to me. Car is one of the most valuable things we own. It's so valuable not only because of its value uh, monetarily, but even if it's a, a bad car. You know, I, we talk in our family about the, the little blue car we have that doesn't work very well and right now sounds like an airplane engine going off. Even that car is valuable because it can get you from place to place. What if somebody borrows it and never brings it back? Does it surprise you? That this type of sin is described here as the guilty and the wicked? And yet, isn't that part of the heart of the wicked is to take advantage of others, to manipulate them, to take advantage of them for their own benefit? What distinguishes the righteous from the guilty? Now, on the one hand, we know because we're sinners by nature and because we struggle with these things, it is in our nature to deceive and to manipulate and to try to get our own way. Even when we do what is right, we do it for the wrong motivations. But what is the difference? God's law is in their heart. 
In other words, it's not anything that is in them by their nature, by their power, by their effort. It's something that God places within us. That scripture that reminds us in Psalm 119.11 where it says, I store God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. On the one hand, we meditate upon it, we love it, we, we seek to uh, learn it and to grow from it, but in the end, God has to place it in our heart for it to be effective in us by his Holy Spirit. These are the descriptions of these contrasting people. So what happens if you're one of God's people who by grace has been given the law of God in your heart, by grace you have begun to learn what it is to be gracious and giving and speaking words of righteous wisdom and justice, what is it that we should do about it? Or what is it that, that we should be comforted in? It's that the Lord will treat us according to these divisions. First of all, the righteous. There are ten things here that I've listed from this particular passage. First of all, a repeated theme throughout this section. The Lord will bless the righteous with an inheritance. Of course, particularly in David's writing, he talks about the inheritance of the land. For us on this side of the cross, we're particularly interested in the anti-type that this is in the New Testament. That is our inheritance of heaven. Secondly, he says he establishes his steps. That's verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. The the interesting part of this is it shows us that for the righteous, God delights in what we're doing. Can you think of that? God loves us and delights and takes pleasure in these things that we're doing and being gracious and giving and so forth. And so what does he do? He establishes our steps. In other words, he reinforces and builds a foundation for us when we're following his way. Thirdly, verse 24, though he fall, a reminder that even the righteous will go through troubling times and distresses. It's not a bed of roses to be a believer Even when he does fall, it won't last forever. Why? Because the Lord upholds his hand when he falls. In other words, God gets you up. I don't think it's that God is holding out his hand so you can just grasp it and get his hand. No, he reaches down and grabs you and brings you up. It may not even be in this life. But in the end, when it comes to eternity, he will bring us to himself. God does this for the righteous. Fourthly, He does not abandon us in poverty. We are reminded here that God is not about abandoning us. It says in verse 28, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. We're reminded in verse 26, he is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. This is after we understand that the children will not beg for bread. Now I have to say, I don't know how old David was when he wrote this. But my kids are always reminding me that I'm getting old now. And now I've had gray hair uh, for about 10, 11 years. It started out with just a little bit. Now it's uh, covering my head. I've got the hoary head that scriptures talk about. That's kind of a fun thing. And as you grow older and you look back at your experiences, as David does, he says this rather interesting thing. I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. You know, it's interesting. I think we could probably find cases where we thought righteous people were poor. 
and sometimes where it seems as if they are begging for bread. Now, we're reminded earlier in chapter 37, he talked about times of famine where they won't necessarily starve, but, but we know that, that this is not David saying, okay, there's going to be no circumstance whatsoever where the righteous will not be begging. What he is saying is, in the end, God will not bring them to abject poverty forever. He will supply for them in his time, in his way. Why? Because he does not forsake his saints. This is, again is verse 28. The word for saints in the Old Testament, a little different than the word for saints in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word for saints that is normally characteristic is those who are sanctified, those who are set apart. Here it's interesting. These are those who are a part of hesed. This is that word, steadfast love, faithfulness, mercy, however you want to describe it. These are his covenant people. He will never forsake them. In other words, if you're part of his covenant, he has chosen you, he has loved you, he has caused you by his spirit and God's word pricking you to understand your sin. You've come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Why have you done this? Because God has worked his covenant in you and he has loved you since the foundation of the world. He has chosen you despite the fact that you're undeserving. He has worked in you powerful ways to convict you and challenge you and bring you to faith in his son. And because he's done that, he will carry to completion what he started. Philippians 1.6, your memory verse this morning. God will never abandon his people forever. And in case you don't get the point, he says it again. Verse 33, the Lord will not abandon him, that is the righteous, to the power of the wicked, to evil power. It may seem like he will. You might have a King Manasseh during your day. Where for over 50 years he's a wicked, awful king bringing terrible things upon his people and the righteous are killed and forsaken, it appears. Yet in the end, God will not abandon the righteous person. The other thing that's interesting is here he says, the end of verse 33, or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Now does this mean that whenever a righteous person goes to trial, he's not going to be convicted of a crime? we were to think that, we could look in the newspapers and see how that's not necessarily true. But the idea here is of being condemned, it's actually literally be declared guilty. I don't think he's talking here of necessarily in a courtroom scene where someone has been sued or unjustly uh, settled or brought to court or whatever, charged, I think what it's talking about is even when the wicked charge them and condemn them, even they might bring them to trial and do these things, yet the Lord, if the person is righteous and innocent, the Lord will declare them innocent instead of guilty. And of course, there are repercussions here theologically as well. Why is the righteous righteous? It's because by their faith in Christ, either looking forward to Christ in the Old Testament, looking back on Christ in our day, if they trust in Jesus Christ, they are declared just and innocent by the faith that they have in Christ. Just like Abraham, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So it is, we who are in Christ 
when it comes to eternal justice, God will look at us and see not our righteousness, which is filthy rags. He will see the righteousness of Christ and declare us not guilty. Eighth, simple, he gives salvation to him. You see this throughout this section of scripture. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, verse 39 says. Salvation comes from him. It doesn't come from ourselves. We can't do it. We can't accomplish it. It doesn't come from our pastor. He can't save you. It doesn't come from a Sunday school teacher or a parent or some descendant or ancestor either way. It doesn't come from any of those things. It doesn't come from our ability to be gracious and giving. It comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. He gives salvation to his people. And in case that's not good enough, recognize that when we find times of distress, this is a reminder here that even though David says, I don't remember seeing anybody begging, yet there will be times of trouble or distress. And in those times, what is he? He's a mountain stronghold. He is someone we can grasp onto and hide in. In verse 40, again, the Lord helps, the Lord delivers, the Lord saves. All those words because they take refuge in him. Now this is not like the guilty. It says ten things of blessing upon the righteous, and I probably missed one or two. That happens. What about the guilty? It's interesting that repeated throughout this section of scripture is this word to cut or to cut off. It says repeatedly, Beginning with verse 22, those cursed by him shall be cut off. The word for cut off here is to be rooted out, to be eliminated or destroyed. In the end, God will eliminate the guilty, the transgressor, the wicked, however you want to describe that person. Not only that, but he cuts off his children. It says in verse 28, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. In other words, you will fail to see the generational blessing of those that have an inheritance. Instead, his children will be cut off. Either they'll be cut off from him or they'll be cut off with him if they too are guilty. Third, he makes them disappear. This idea of the guy who's spreading or exposing himself like a green laurel tree. It says here, he passed away. Behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. In other words, it can disappear from the annals of history. will not find them again. And of course, in the end, he destroys the rebellious. Verse 38, transgressors. The word for transgressors here, those who revolt or rebel shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. There's that word cut off again. Now it doesn't say specific things like the other. But why this treatment for the righteous and the guilty? On the one hand, they all began in the same place. Sinners unworthy of being saved. Those who were all unrighteous, there's no unrighteous, no, not one. There's no one who even seeks God. But here's this group called the righteous and the other group called the guilty that are treated differently by God. Ponder that. My wife and I and our older son were at home yesterday where they raised puppies. And of course, at one point, 
The little girls who live in the home brought out these puppies, and it was so cute. The little things about this big, they were brown, and they wanted to lick your face and get all over and all that kind of stuff. And I asked my wife, I said, do you think that the girls are cuter, the puppies are cuter, or the girls with the puppies are the cutest? But if you know about puppies, you know that sometimes the mother will turn away one of her puppies and will not feed them and nurse them. And unless there is intervention, then that puppy will starve to death and die. You also know that if you look at nature, there are mother birds or other animals where they will take care of their young, but if something else or some other young comes into their nest or their home, they will turn them away and treat them differently. Those that belong get protection and provision and nurture and care, special treatment. But those that don't belong are cut off from such benefits. You see, that's what God does with his people. We don't deserve this better treatment because God has brought us into this family, adopted us, rescued us from our life of sin and depravity. But once he brings us in, we become a part of that special people called the people of God, his covenant people, by grace through faith. And he gives us these blessings that he gives, gives no one else. And notice here, even in this psalm, there's a 10-4 listing. Now, this isn't, you know, 10-4 over and out. But there were 10 things I described that were given to the righteous. There were just four things that I described that were given to the wicked, all bad. But this is what God does for his people. He loves us with an undying love. He gives us so many benefits. He promises never to let us go. He brings us to him. He's our rock and our refuge. He establishes our lives, and he takes delight in us. Why in the world he would take delight in us? I'll never know. But he takes delight in us. He establishes our steps. He will never abandon us completely or eternally to poverty and destruction. But he will help deliver and save the righteous. Okay, so all all this about a description of them briefly, uh, the the treatment that God gives the righteous and the guilty, but, but now what are we supposed to do about it? This is the hardest job of a preacher. You see, when a preacher gives a sermon, I was taught in seminary, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to first explain the text, give the truth, and then as necessary, you illustrate the text. That is, you tell stories, but only stories that help explain what the text is teaching, not just a story for story's sake. Then the last thing you're supposed to do is apply the text. In other words, the so what part of it. But the good thing about this passage is, despite the fact that it seems to be a little bit unorganized in its poetic structure addressing these things, is the application is clear. It's imperatives in the Hebrew. And here they are. Verse 27 is the first one. Turn away from evil and do good. Now remember, the context here is what do we do when the wicked is prospering? The first part of the chapter had other imperatives, don't fret. But it also had this in verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. So here we're both on the one hand, trust in the Lord, 
On the other hand, turn aside from evil and do good. Now, you might notice when I read the text in verse 27, I said, instead of the ESVs, and, shall, and so shall you dwell forever, I said, and dwell forever. That's because it, too, is an imperative. These three things, turn aside from evil, do good, and dwell forever. In other words, when we see the wicked prospering, the first part of the psalm tells us, we have a tendency to fly into a passion and get all upset and fly off the handle over it. Don't do that. God will take care of it. In this portion of scripture, we're reminded that in our reaction, as we have a tendency to fly off the handle and do those things, we join them in evil practices. In our anger, unlike the New Testament which says, in your anger, don't sin, we don't do that very well. In our anger, we often sin. We cuss at the TV. We curse out those who are around us. We see the wicked prospering and passing unjust laws or doing unjust things in our society. And we look at ways to have vengeance upon them and get them back. God says, I'm going to take care of the wicked. You are to do good. And in that, you're to dwell forever. Now, what does it mean? How can we dwell forever? We can't do this by our own power. It's a reminder that we're looking at this from an eternal perspective. It's not at the here and now. You know, as as young people growing up, I remember those times when I just wanted to focus on what was going on right now. And I wanted to make my decisions based on the now. If somebody I thought was out to get me, I wanted to get him back first so that I didn't have to deal with it. If a certain circumstance was happening, I wanted to fix the problem right now. And I have to say, as a husband, when my wife comes home from work and she tells me all the problems at work, I want to go to school and fix it myself. I want to tell the administrators what I think, and I want to tell the other teachers how, how they need to do things, and I want to fix all the problems that are there. But we must do this from an eternal perspective, doing what is right, speaking justly and righteously and wisdom. And then perhaps the thing that's even more challenging is what 34 tells us to do. Wait for the Lord. I don't like to wait. I want a politician to solve all my problems. I want the right educational institution that is perfect. I want the church that is filled with no hypocrites in it and does all the right things. I want my relationships with my family to be such that we never have any problems, and I want it now. But the person who is righteous waits for the Lord and keeps his way. David is so clear here. He's saying, you all, you react so uh, amazingly, viciously, amazingly quickly, and amazingly without thinking when things aren't going your way and you think things are turned upside down. And all I want you to do is trust and obey. I want you to keep my way. You know, when I look at the world, I know that the bad kids in school seem to get all the attention. 
Certain lawbreakers seem to get all the breaks, don't they? Ruthless, ambitious, mean-spirited people win elections, gain promotions in the workplace, and get rich on the backs of the poor. And even those that we don't agree with will say this in certain ways, and there is an element of truth to what they say. But David is telling us, we believers, that's no excuse. That's no excuse for doing anything but simply walking with the Lord and living the life we are called to live as believers. We have no excuse to go out there and treat other people like dirt because we think someone's being treated unjustly. We have no right to go out there and speak things that are not true, deceptive, or unlawful in order to get our way and our comeuppance against those that we think are worse than ourselves. Instead, what should we do? The last section of verse is verse 37. This is the other imperative verse, 27, 34, 37. Mark the blameless. Actually, the word is to guard or keep. The blameless. The blameless here is is the perfect or complete. In other words, the righteous person you are to guard. In other words, you're to protect those who are righteous, particularly those who might be vulnerable. But then the other thing is so much more important. Behold or see the straight or upright. Instead of focusing so much on the people that are doing the bad stuff, he wants us to focus on the people that are doing the good stuff. You know, what do we do as believers so often? We look at the world and we say, oh, look at this. Everything is awful. Look at this. We've got these evildoers over here and we've got these wicked people over here and we've got all of this going on over here. Woe is me. Instead, what are we supposed to do? We know in the New Testament it says, look to Jesus. Here in this passage it says, behold the righteous. We look at the example. So like Paul, we tell others, imitate me as I imitate the example of Christ. You see, we should look at the real thing and the ideal thing in order to see how God wants us to live and glorify him rather than looking at the counterfeit and the lies and the wicked. Jesus told his followers in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that they were supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Does that mean it's our job to right every wrong and convict every evildoer? No. It's our job to trust in the Lord and do good. To turn from evil and do good. It's our job to wait on him. It doesn't mean necessarily that we sit back and do nothing. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that it's our job to live the life God has called us to be, to do what is right and pleasing in his eyes first and foremost, and recognize that when things don't work out the way we expect them, God is going to take care of it. You see, the reason at the end is also this. We think sometimes we're all in deep, dark trouble. But God says... I will not forsake my saints. I will not abandon them. Even when it looks like all is lost, I don't know what the future holds. Are the wicked going to have their heyday in the United States of America? Is our country going to collapse and do all those things? Well, yeah, someday it will, because God will judge all the nations of the earth. Maybe it's our time, maybe it's not our time. But we don't place our trust in the United States of America 
or in our Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, as wonderful documents as they are. We don't place our trust in the wonderful military on Memorial Day where we remember the deaths of those who died for the sake of serving our country. We don't place our trust in them. We might remember their sacrifice, but we trust in the Lord who will provide for his people and uphold them, not for 250 years, but for all eternity, because he loves us and he will not leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray. Father, I have a tendency to fly off the handle sometimes, or sometimes to feel overwhelmed and as if nothing can change. But Lord, if anyone can change the spots of a leopard, you can. If anyone can change the stripes of a zebra, you can. But Lord, one thing will never change your love for your people through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to trust in you and live our lives as if we do.